0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. I want to start by asking a question What is the single greatest threat to the gospel, do you think? When you look at our world and our culture, what is the greatest threat out there that we need to defend against? And if we go back uh, in the 70s, it was the sexual revolution. Uh, In the 80s, it was the breakdown of the family. Then came feminism and fundamentalism. Then came uh, postmodernism, new atheism. Even uh, Calvinism was viewed as a threat. And and now it seems like every month, there's a new single greatest threat to the gospel, isn't there? And they're coming so fast that by by the time you learn about the latest greatest threat, a new one's already popped up. It's like we're playing whack-a-mole. Remember that game? And we just got to keep squashing them down. And once we identify the threat, we've got to do something. We've got to respond. Once we identify the threat, we feel the need to neutralize that threat. Taking up arms, rising up in resistance. And so the sexual revolution gave rise to purity culture. The 80s gave rise to the moral majority. And on down the line, alerting everyone to the danger that the other side poses to the gospel, treating the other as an outsider, treating them is a threat. But what if I told you that there is no single greatest threat to the gospel? Because, see, to claim that God and his kingdom and his church can be threatened is to deny the power of the gospel and to imply that they can be defeated. But Jesus, he said in Matthew 16 that that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against his church and his kingdom, didn't he? This week, Miroslav Wolf, a, a theologian who was raised in war-torn Yugoslavia, he said, it is astounding to me to see how prone we, how prone the church is to think that we are Jesus' Jesus, saviors of his fledgling project, the church. What if I told you what we're really doing is building a boogeyman to blame for our problems? What if I told you that this is all simply an expression of our fear, of our insecurity, and our desire for control and for power? Recognizing that we're the outsiders in this world, aren't we? That we are exiles, that we are sojourners, that we are citizens of another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. What if I told you that rather than threats to the gospel, they are distractions from living out the gospel? Rather than pointing people to Jesus by loving like Jesus our combative nature, our violent rhetoric, our hyper-focus on neutralizing threats, all it does is it pushes people away from Jesus. Now hear me. We are called to contend for the faith, right? Jude said that. We are called to expose unfruitful works of darkness, Peter says that we are always to be prepared to give a defense for our hope in the gospel, but the apostle says that we are to do it with gentleness and respect. Paul says to speak the truth in love. If I told you that, would that change the way you live? Would it change the way that you behave? Would it change the way that you worship? Would it change the way that you treat others, the way that you speak to others, the way that you speak about others? And see, this morning as we continue our Advent series for unto us, a child is born in the prophecies of Isaiah, we're going to see that after the prophet spoke of this promise of God's presence among his people, of Emmanuel, God with us, that we saw last week in chapter 7, in chapter 8 he's going to speak of how God's people should live as a faithful remnant in the world, living as, in light of God's promises and his presence. And by doing so, what we are, as a church are going to see is three ways that we live as a faithful remnant of God's people, shining the light of Christ in a dark world. And so here we go, three ways we live as a faithful remnant. Number one is this, abide in the presence of God. Abide in the presence of God. Verse 5 and 6 read, And the Lord spoke to me again, saying, Because this people not my people, but this people, has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Let's stop there for a second. What God is saying to Isaiah here is that because my people, they have refused me this this gently flowing spring that has supplied all of their needs And because these people have rejoiced over the fall of Rezin, right, the king of Syria that we saw last week, and Pekah, the son of Ramoliah, the king of Israel, because of that, he says in verse 7, And it will rise. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, in all his glory. That same raging river that flooded the northern kingdom of Israel, the, the Assyrians that came in, led by Tiglath-Pileser III, is their their hired hand from beyond the Euphrates. God's saying that king that you turned to, that king that you trusted in to protect you from your enemies, to provide for you instead of me, the sovereign God of heavens, the faithful God of your fathers, the God that has protected and provided you for centuries That same river that flooded the north, it will not be contained by a mere border created by human hands. He goes on to say in verse seven, and it will rise over its channels and it will go over its banks and it will sweep on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck as its outspread wings fill, will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. That raging water. It was going to rush into the land of Judah with that same devastating effect, the water quickly rising. And just when they thought that they weren't going to make it, when they're on the, on the brink of drowning, the water's reaching their neck. They can barely keep their nose above water, nearly impossible to breathe without drowning. The waters were going to cease. It kind of reminds me of that scene in Star Wars. I say that a lot, don't I? Reminds me of that scene in Star Wars when Han and Leia and Luke and Chewie, when they're in the, the garbage compactor, and, and, you know, the walls start closing in, and they're trying to stop it, and Han's like, one thing's for sure. We're all going to get a lot thinner. And, uh, like, right in the nick of time, R2 shuts it all down, doesn't he? He shuts it down. That's what God's saying here. But he says that, that even then, though, He says, its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. He switches metaphors here from water to a bird. This enemy of the enemy that they had turned to, that they had trusted in, it was going to continue to hover over them like a bird of prey, right? Circling over a a wounded animal. Make sure you don't stop for any too long because it's watching and it's waiting for you to fall and for you to fail so we can dive in and feast on your carcass. And yet even then, in the face of what appeared to be near certain death and destruction, there was hope. There was hope that these raging waters, they weren't going to consume everything. Hope that they weren't going to destroy everything. Hope that a a remnant would somehow survive. Because of the hope of Emmanuel, the hope of God's continued faithfulness, his promised presence among his people. God, he was faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham that that through him all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. He was faithful to his promise to Moses that he would be their God and they would be his people. He was faithful to the promises of David that his kingdom would be sure forever, that his throne would be established forever, and he was faithful to his promise to Isaiah that a small remnant, a tenth, would remain and that from this remnant from this stump of a tree of this mighty forest that had been chopped down a holy seed would sprout forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse from the line of David but not only would god preserve his people not only god preserve his promises he would defeat his enemies he goes on to say in verses 9 and 10 he says be broken you peoples and be shattered Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. As great as a serious strength and wisdom and rhetoric were, they meant nothing when they stood face to face with the God of Israel, with Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was a reminder that the the transcendent, infinite God of the heavens was near, that he was here, that he was with his people as the intimate, imminent God of their fathers. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people and his sovereignty over creation that no matter how dark things may look today, no matter how bleak things may look tomorrow, that in the end, in God's way, in God's time, God would win. And what I wonder is, like the people of Judah, we have turned from God at times, haven't we? We have trusted in things other than God to provide for us, to protect us. Like the people of Judah, we felt those raging waters swarming in, rushing in. We, we felt those days where we can barely keep one nostril above water. We've seen those vultures circling overhead, waiting for us to fall. And you know, sometimes God allows those waters to rush in, doesn't he? Sometimes God sends the vulture in, but not to harm us. No, he sends it in to warn us calling out to us, calling to us to turn to him and to trust in him, to return to his presence when we've wandered and abide in his presence when we're tired, resting in his loving arms, worshiping in his glory, comforted by his people, knowing that if God is for us, if he is in the darkness with us, then who can be against us? Because Paul says nothing, not anything, can separate us from the love of Christ. And so we live in this world, as did these people, as a faithful remnant, faithful to God, returning to God, abiding in his presence, the presence of God, our Father, Abba. Three ways we live as a faithful remnant. Here's number two. We walk in the fear of God. Walk in the fear of God. Look here at verse 11. Verse 11 begins, for the Lord spoke this to me with his strong hand upon me, right? This reassuring hand of the father on a shoulder saying, I am with you. I am for you. I have got this. And he warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. God is warning Isaiah and this faithful remnant to not walk in the way of the rest of the people of Judah, who, although they were biological children of Abraham, they were children of the flesh, they were not people of faith. They were not, in fact, children of God. He was saying, don't walk like them. Don't live like them. Don't believe what they believe. Don't fear what they fear." And he's describing people that lived in fear, that lived in dread of what others might do to them, what others might take from them. And this fearing of their enemies, because of this fear, out of this fear, they turned from God. And they turned to the Assyrians, right? The enemy of their enemy we saw last week to provide for them, to protect them. Because they were only seeing in part, weren't they? They weren't seeing what God saw. They weren't seeing the way God saw it. And so rather than trusting in God, they trusted in conspiracy. They trusted in conjecture, filling in the blanks with their own assumptions, seeking control, seeking to understand. All of this, God says, driven by fear. And turning to and trusting in conspiracy is nothing new, is it? It's true 2,700 years ago, and it's true in our very day. In 2017, we saw a a tidal wave of conspiracy sweeping into our homes, sweeping into our families, even sweeping into churches. As this anonymous source with supposed Q-level security clearance named QAnon began posting cryptic messages online of of a secret cabal, a secret faction that was at work in our world. And he required his true supporters to do the research, to uncover the secret messages in his posts. And what we saw over these last few years is a community of believers begin to form with their own mantra, right? Where we go one, we go all. And from the outside, it was like you were watching a really bad made-for-TV movie, wasn't it? But it wasn't. This wasn't fiction. No, this was a really bad reality TV show that we watched play out in front of our very eyes. Especially true if you had friends or family that were caught up in this, loved ones caught up in this. And as you're watching, you're thinking to yourself, like, what would ever lead someone down such a path? What would lead you down to the path to the point that like families were ripped apart by this? Churches were ripped apart by this to the point that people stormed the Capitol building almost a year ago because of this, in defense of this. Why? Well, it's actually really simple, and God tells us right here. It's that belief in conspiracy is bred by fear. What God spoke to Isaiah 2700 years ago is as true today as it was then. We're looking for someone to blame for our situation. We're looking for a fall guy. We're looking for a boogeyman, anyone but ourselves. We're seeking simple explanations to complex situations. And conspiracy theories provide that. And they're driven by three basic human motives, responding to three felt needs, addressing three common fears, fears that we all have. And so these three motives, number one is there's an epistemic Motive, an epistemic motive, trying to understand our environment, this world that we live in, and responding to our desire for certainty, fearing that mystery, fearing the unknown of what surrounds us. And so there's an epistemic motive. Number two, there's an existential motive, seeking to, to control our environment, right? Responding to our desire for safety and security, fearing the danger and the chaos of today and the uncertainty and the unknown of tomorrow. There's an epistemic motive, an existential motive, and number three, there's a social motive. This belonging in our environment. Responding not just to our desire of being with others, but of affirmation from others. Fearing not just being alone, but of worse, being wrong. And this insular nature of the echo chamber, it affirms the believer's beliefs, And creating this powerful sense of belonging. And by providing simple explanations to complex situations, conspiracy theories, they they provide that sense of security we desire. They provide that uh, sense of control that we desire, that sense of belonging that we long for, calming fears in the midst of the darkness. And so while they may appear entirely illogical to someone on the outside, they are a powerful, addictive drug to those caught up on the inside. They are cast under a spell, so to speak. And that's why you can't simply snap your finger and wake them up from this. They're living in an alternate reality and will reject any and all evidence and truth that contradicts the world that they've created in their mind, that they've read online. And study after study, and article after article that I read this week. It affirmed exactly what God said when he said in verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Right? This belief in conspiracy is bred by fear. And what God is saying to these people, God is saying to us today, is don't Believe what they believe. Don't fear what they fear because what it does is it distracts your attention and it draws your affection away from me. Instead, he says in verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Him you shall trust. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. It's only been two weeks, but I think how quickly we forget that image that we read about in chapter six of God high and lifted up, of God sitting reigning on his throne. How quick we are forget to who God is, that he is infinitely holy, 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 divinely distinct from his creation. How quickly we forget what it is that God has done, that he has filled creation with his glory. And how quickly we forget that God alone is rightly to be honored as holy and that God alone is rightly to be feared. And not in a cowering, terrifying fear, but in a humbled reverent awe one that that draws us in that draws us in worship that draws us to our knees in worship you remember that vision that we read in chapter 6 John Oswald the Old Testament theologian he wrote the attitude we take toward God will determine what aspect of him we will experience and I think we feel that when we come in this place in, the, in Sunday morning, the attitude that you bring into this room on Sunday morning, and if I could say without shaming the time in which you enter into this room, um, it will determine the aspect of Him we will experience in this room together. Our walk with God is determined by our view of God. And he continues on in verse 14 saying, And he and God will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, both a stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they will fall and be broken. They shall be a snare and taken. When we walk in fear of others, when we walk in fear of the world, It distracts our attention and it draws our affection away from God. It draws it downward. It draws it inward rather than upward. And when that happens, like, we're clumsy. And everything is a stumbling block. Everything is is, is in our way. Because we're not watching where we're going. Right? Imagine going into the city, going downtown to Chicago, and you're walking along a crowded sidewalk. I get they're not as crowded as they were a couple years ago. But uh, you're walking along a sidewalk. If all you're doing is looking down on your feet, you're you're gonna upset some people, probably, right? Including yourself. And so, like, we're headed downtown this evening or this afternoon, and we're gonna um, we're gonna look at the Marshall Fields windows. I said Marshall Fields, not the other word. Amen. All God's Chicago people said that. We're gonna see Marshall Fields windows. We're gonna go to the Chris Kindle Market. And uh, Ethan and Sean, can you hear me? No? Okay. Uh, Monday night, we're taking the boys to their very first Bulls game. That's their Christmas present. They don't know it. Um, I'm super pumped. Like, only half the team's going to be there because the other half are in COVID protocols, but they don't care. They're going to have fun anyway. And uh, here's the thing, though. If, if, if we're walking like a bunch of farm people that now live in the suburbs, just looking at our feet, not walking where we're going, we're going to constantly be, be missing things, aren't we? Like, we're going to miss all the beautiful displays in the Marshall Fields windows if we're just looking at our feet. If we're walking into Chris Kendall Market just looking at our feet, you know we're bound to bump into someone and, and we're going to spill their glue find all over them. They're going to drop their commemorative Chris Kendall Market mug and we're going to have to go buy them a new mug. And, and if we go to the Bulls game and we're just constantly looking down at our feet, we're totally going to miss Caruso throwing up a lob for DeRozan to like dunk it and uh, then we're going to miss Stacey King saying, turn up the AC. Don't you guys, we went a whole week without Bulls basketball, guys. It was torture in our household. I can't wait. But that's the destructive nature of fear. And our broken and fallen world that we live in, it preys on our fears, doesn't it? It's laying traps trying to snare us, distracting our attention and drawing our affection away from God and onto our fear, onto the object that we fear. And we fear the other. We fear the other, viewing them as offensive and treating them as a threat. That's true of those with other political beliefs. The other side is a threat, aren't they? That's true of religious and doctrinal beliefs. The other side is a threat. That is true of skin color. That is true of ethnicity. That is true of birth origin. That is true of language. That is true of other stories that are different from yours, other experiences that are different from yours, and other sin that they struggle with that is different from yours. We view them as offensive. We treat the other as an outsider. We treat them as a threat. And here's why. Here's why this matters so, so much. It's that fear creates a stumbling block to love. Fear creates a stumbling block to love. It creates a stumbling block to loving others, loving one another, loving our neighbor, and loving our enemy. Three passages in Scripture that pretty much leave nobody out in terms of who we're called to love. Loving others, but also loving God. But when our eyes are cast downward, when we are constantly stumbling, what we notice is that it feels like God's just always getting in your way, isn't he? That God becomes a stumbling block God actually becomes offensive because he's everywhere you turn. He is omnipresent. He has no shortage of stumbling blocks to put in your way. But as God is breaking you down in the midst of that, what he is doing and he's calling out to you and he is drawing you to him. He's drawing you to walk in the fear of the Lord because when you walk in the fear of the Lord, what he says is that he becomes a sanctuary. He becomes a refuge. He becomes a safe place of rest. He becomes protection. He becomes provision. He provides rest and peace. Where where the fears of this world, they might not go away, but they quiet, they melt away in the presence of his glory. And so we walk in the fear of the Lord. And the third way we live as a faithful remnant is to trust in the word of the Lord. To trust in the word of the Lord. Look here at verse 16 to 18. It says, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Sion. The, uh, The hardening of the hearts that God had told Isaiah about back in chapter 6. It had come. And these supposed people of God, they they refused to listen to the truth of God's word. They failed to see God's presence among them. They failed to abide in his presence. And so this faithful remnant of God's people, they lived out the Shema. Now the Shema is a daily Jewish prayer that included a passage in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, Uh, which called God's people to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, and might, to store God's word in their heart and to bind his word as a sign on their hands, storing them not just for themselves, but for a future generation, whose hearts would be more receptive to God, hearing what God had said, seeing what God had done, and experiencing his presence among them. And this faithful remnant, they would wait patiently for that day, hoping in their sovereign Lord, trusting in their faithful God, as evidenced by these signs that he had given Isaiah, his sons, Shear-Jeshob, whose name means a faithful remnant, shall return. And his son from chapter 8, Mathar shalal hashbaz of God being with them, of him dwelling among them on Mount Zion, protecting his people, providing for his people. And he says in verse 19, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Not to of the teaching and to the testimony they should turn. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light, they live in darkness. When you don't like the answer someone's given you, maybe a co-worker or a boss, someone. Um, when you don't like the answer someone's giving you, what do you do? You go find someone else and you ask them, don't you? Like When you're growing up, if you don't like the answer mom gave, you go ask dad and you continue asking dad until you break dad. And then you get him in trouble with mom and you're scot-free. At least that's what you thought as a kid. And that's what we do with God. The, when we don't like what God has to say, those who, those who don't trust what God has to say... What he's saying is it's, it's easy to turn from God and to trust in other things. Here they were trusting in the cult. They were trusting in magic, in mediums who would summon spirits, in necromancers who would summon the dead, who ancient Near Eastern culture claims supposedly spoke in these bird-like chirps and whispers. All of this, going back to verse 12, driven By fear, in this case, fear of what God had said, fear of the truth of God, hoping for another answer, an answer that they liked. And again, I wonder how different from the people of Judah are we? Proof texting, as we talked about last week, picking and choosing the passages of Scripture that we like to support our beliefs and discarding the rest, essentially creating our own God in our own image, being obedient to a word that we have written, When scripture says something we don't like, we just turn the page, don't we? When a pastor preaches a passage you don't agree with, you just go to another church. That's why every week in our series on the Sermon on the Mount this year, I said the words of Jesus might not sound like what you thought, and the way of Jesus may not look like what you were taught. And I think what we found throughout that series is that that was exactly true. God has called us to trust in the entirety of his word, amen? Not our favorite passages, but all of them. He's called us to trust in the entirety of his word as he has revealed himself both through the written word of Scripture and the living word of his Son. And as we walk through the darkness in this world, God's word is our flashlight that shines in the darkness. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path that shows us the way forward, illuminating our lives. Scripture is that lens through which we view our entire world through. But some will reject the light, some will continue to walk in darkness. And he closes saying in verse 21 they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into darkness. But what we know is that the darkness will not have the final say, amen? The darkness will not have the final say because there was a light that was going to come into the world, a light that the Apostle John says would never be extinguished, that light that the darkness would never overcome, the true light which gives light to everyone, which offers light to everyone but a light that not everyone would receive. And that light we know to be the eternal Word who was in the beginning with God as God. That light was the divine Word incarnate who took on flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us, that we sang this morning. The living Word of God, Jesus Christ, who revealed the glory of God, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is that light that we long for throughout the darkness of the Advent season. And I don't know about you, but this feels like the darkest Advent we've ever experienced, hasn't it? Only four weeks and it feels like four years. Only two years and it feels like 20. And it feels like there's no end in sight. It feels like there's no light at the end of this tunnel, doesn't it? And yet what scripture says is there is light, that Jesus Christ is that light that Isaiah goes on to describe as a great light that shone on people who walked in darkness. I think we can relate to that this year, can't we? Who who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. I think we've experienced Advent unlike any other year this year. Jesus Christ is that light that Isaiah promises, a light that I hope you return this Friday to hear about to see, to experience with us together on Christmas Eve. And that light that Jesus has given us, he he has called those of us who have received that light to reflect that light in the darkness of our world. Not hiding that light under a basket, but, but putting it on a stand, putting it in our windows, putting it in the center of our house so that All can see, giving light to all in our families, in our homes, in our lives, in our communities, in our world. Shining that light like a city set on a hill. Shining that light before others. Sharing that light with others who still live in darkness. So that they too may step into the light. So that they too may live in the light and that they may see God's glory all around them. Falling at the feet of Jesus and worshiping Christ, the newborn King. And so, let's be that faithful remnant of God's people. Abiding in His presence. Walking in fear of the Lord and not of our world. And trusting in the Word of God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.